and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, the lovely Kristen Pugh. Uh, lovely, salty, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can be both things. <laughs> so yeah, on today's episode, we talked to Andrew Dana Hudson, who is a sustainability researcher and a speculative fiction writer and who has written a new book called Our Shared Storm, which I think has a really cool concept behind it. It imagines five possible climate realities um, in our future. And it actually is like a story of interconnected conference of the parties um, or like the COP, the big like climate conference. Andrew has thought a lot about climate change and sustainability, and he has sort of an all hands on deck perspective to the climate crisis. And I think that approach is a really interesting contrast to some of the previous climate conversations that we've had. So I will say I'm still worried after our conversation that fossil fuel companies will use technologies like direct air capture just to justify emitting more. But on the other hand, I think Andrew has made a super compelling case that there's a role for these technologies even after we get to net zero. So I think from my perspective, he convinced me that climate repair can be a good thing. We just need to really make sure that fossil fuel companies don't use that as their like get out of emissions like reduction targets. <laughs> Free card. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is a really important aspect of that exact conversation because we have done an episode about geoengineering in our last season, which is like, this is terrifying and maybe we shouldn't. But also, like, we're kind of at a, a point of no return in a lot of cases, especially with some like biodiversity loss where like, I mean, he makes the point in the episode that like, we just cannot, even if we reach net zero, we've, there's too much carbon in the atmosphere and we need to actually be coming up with solutions in it. Like, it's just, it's, we, it's too late. <laughs> and so uh, I, I think it's a really important perspective that especially folks like us on the left do need to hear out. It's complicated. And I hope everyone enjoys this extremely nuanced conversation. In addition to that, though, we talked about speculative fiction and its role in storytelling and imagining a better future uh, in general. And I, we ha this is our first time talking to like a, an actual person who writes fiction. Um, and speculative fiction is some of my favorite sort of writing. And I was so thrilled to just talk about the role of art with, with Andrew. I really enjoy talking to him and uh, I'm sure you guys will too. And seeing as we know you're going to enjoy this conversation, why not start right now by showing your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform? Yay. All right, hit it. What does climate repair look like to you? <laughs> like, what is climate repair? This is what we're talking about today, and I just explain it as though I don't understand. Well, a distinction I like to make is that we talked a lot about climate change. But the impression that people get when they think about climate change is that, well, if we just stop changing, if we halt the change, then we're good. And that, I think, does not successfully capture the situation because the, the change doesn't just sort of go away. It's not like as soon as we turn the coal plants off, the sky's clear and the, the, like, the air's sweet again and the, like stirring music plays right the ice caps regrow yeah <laughs> what <laughs> that's not what's gonna happen <laughs> we're gonna close the last coal plant and that's not gonna happen <laughs> the carbon just hangs out there Ugh. as a permanent waste product in our air and in our ocean 
And from that perspective, I think we've made a big mess and caused a lot of damage, damage to the extent that we think of our planetary systems as as we sort of normatively decided that the ones in which human beings and the rest of the biosphere as currently evolved are, you know, likes to live, that we don't like getting outside of those those norms. I'm not trying to be a uh, heliocene uh, chauvinist here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we've we've made a mess of it and we should we should clean it up, right? And that means getting the primarily the, the carbon dioxide that we've emitted into the air and, and also that it now permeates the oceans, getting that back out and storing it, putting it away, disposing of it somewhere durably where it's not going to cause the things that we think of as, as global warming, right? Which is radiative forcing, right? Increased, uh, the light the sun sends the earth, the, the higher the radiative forcing, the more the that's going to actually cause warming, right? So we can turn that down by removing the greenhouse gases and also ocean acidification, which is a huge problem. And so if we can get a bunch of carbon out of our sort of broader system and put it away, we will kind of get our oceans back to a, a state where the, the corals aren't bleaching and the you know is more habitable for the, the various creatures that have co-evolved with us, our cohort, our sort of planetary cohort. Awesome. I think that's a really good explanation. And I, I I completely agree with you that I think this conversation is kind of missing in a lot of the like discourse around climate change and mitigation and adaptation. Kristen and I are steeped in this stuff, as our listeners are if they're regulars, but even we don't talk a lot about like carbon removal. Like we've talked about it in passing a little bit. I'm really excited to dig into it a little bit more with you. The article that you wrote came out like a year ago and it was looking at why climate repair is something that we need to be discussing more seriously. And I really liked that you pointed out, according to the latest IPCC report, carbon capture is an actual necessity for any emissions trajectory that holds the world to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So like, it's weird that we're not talking more about it because it's, I think out of what, a hundred and some odd scenarios, only like five didn't have like carbon capture as an, as a solution. So I guess like how, how necessary is carbon dioxide removal, like through techno means, like, could we not just plant like 10,000 trees and be done with it? Well, we'd have to plant more like, I don't know, a trillion trees, which, you know, I'm all for planting trees. I, I don't want to be anti-tree, <laughs> but I think it's important to remember that, you know, we've, we've done all this deforestation and that does contribute to the amount of carbon uh, waste we, we're going to have to deal with, but it's only like 15, 20%. The vast majority of the carbon that we have to deal with is this stuff that was locked away underground for millions of years right? The, the stuff that was formed into these complex but stable hydrocarbons that were literally like folded into the earth by geologic processes. And we dug them out and used them for cheap energy, which, you know, was like really nice for a while, but now we kind of need to, to put it back where it came from or find other ways to, to deal with it. So, you know, one, it's, there's just a matter of we added a bunch to the system, right? So we we can plant a lot of trees. We can try and overclock our forests. We can do a lot of afforestation. We could 
you know, do a really complicated uh, and ambitious you know, irrigation project to green the Sahel or something like this, right? To turn the savannah desert into a, a tropical rainforest that with you know, huge amounts of carbon stored. But you know, those are really like as ambitious projects with their own climate impacts that they would cause and real like enormous land use considerations. So I, I tend to think that when we talk about doing things like growing trees and and creating better soils, we should do those things for their own value, for the ecosystem services they provide, for the biodiversity that they preserve, you know, all all the different reasons why having thriving ecosystems are good for us and for our cohort. But I don't think that uh, we can cover the whole problem, all 500 gigatons, just by planting trees. That would radically change the planet as as we live on it, right? And not in ways that we're entirely we would entirely be happy with, because it would it would mean giving up tons of land that we use to do things like grow crops or live, or you know, in the future potentially like collect solar energy, right? So the, there's all this kind of jockeying for for space involved, and one of the advantages that the more technological or industrial methods like direct air capture have is that you can kind of scale them up and then keep them running, right? So you, you know, a, a direct air capture plant takes up X amount of space, but it, when you grow a tree and it reaches its maximum height, that's all the carbon it's really going to get, right? You grow a forest, you put a bunch of carbon there, and if you can keep the forest around, it's sort of nicely stored durably. But it's not going to keep sucking carbon year after year after year and putting more and more away in a meaningful way. But we can make machines that do that and create infrastructure that then turns that into in, into a disposal apparatus. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about different types of climate repair. Um, so I think we're going to probably dig into direct air capture um, a lot in this conversation, but uh, but maybe also giving a survey of some of the other methods of climate repair as well, just so people have a sense. There are elements like improving uh, soil quality, doing different kinds of agricultural methods. I think that stuff is a real big deal and we should do it. There's afforestation, reforestation, right? That can get a lot of carbon out of the air. But there's also these more industrial methods, right? Direct air capture where you build a machine that just passes air through it. It moves air through what's called a sorbent that will absorb some of the CO2 molecules in that air and then find a way to extract those and and pump those into something else, right? So that's using just sort of any air in the atmosphere. Then there's there's sort of like point source uh, capture, right? I mean, this is where you get into the carbon capture and and storage as uh, instantiated by fossil fuel companies where they want to put carbon capture units on top of coal or oil burning or gas plants and capture the CO2 that they would otherwise just emit in dump into our atmosphere. And I mean, I certainly would prefer they do that to, to not, but uh, that's not really making number go down, right? That's just mitigating an emission that would otherwise uh, happen. 
But you can also conceive of something like bioenergy capture and storage, right? BEX. So the idea there is like, okay, instead of using fossil fuels, which take this geologically, once geologically stored carbon and put it into the air by, and you burn it along the way and make energy. Well, what if we, we took some carbon that's already in our general biosphere system, right? Like you timber or other kinds of biomass and you burn that or use that to make some kind of bioenergy fuel and then capture that at, at the point source, right, at the plant where you're going to admit it, and then you regrow the forest or whatever, the plantation that you used, right? So then it's like, okay, the car, the plants are doing the carbon capture or doing the carbon removal for you first, and then you, you just make sure that you're not dumping it back into the air, you know that I think there's something there. I think uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of sense that that has it like weird leads to weird like land use dynamics and you know anyway why not just do DAC with renewable energy because it's it's probably just more efficient to get your electrons from solar panels rather than burning you know, grass or, or wood. But I mean, a lot of these things are kind of very much context dependent, right? Like it depends on on what country you're in and what the resources are like, and and then there's various forms of oceanic carbon removal, which I, I'm very much not an expert in. But they one called uh, alkalinity enhancement. So the ocean is is starting to acidify thanks to the increased carbon in the in the system, and you know, there are ways that we could instead push the, the alkalinity and try to basically spur growth of algae and seaweed and, and various kinds of ocean life and you know, find ways to try try and keep that durably stored, right, in the sort of deep sea trenches and things where it's not going to as readily you know, rotate into the broader biosphere, atmosphere, hydrosphere system. Uh, and then there's there's various forms of enhanced weathering. I mean, this is the way in which over time, certain rocks will bind carbon from the air into them in ways that will, will stick around for a really long time. And so, you know, if you can find those types of minerals and process them in a way that makes it easier for them to, to do this, right? Like chop them up, and like spread them out on the beach, something like that. Then the carbon from the air will just kind of uh, find its way into those and be, may create a different rock. That's not, you know, and maybe it doesn't matter too much what kind of rock it is. Right. But like in, in terms of like, if it's the one with the carbon or, or without the carbon, but that would be a, a potential sort of form of, of durable storage. Right. And I keep saying durable storage because I can, go and you know you can get co2 in a canister and hold it there but that's not like a long-term solution right like pressurized canisters we we have to put away an amount of co2 that's like the size of lake michigan it's like really huge it's like 500 gigatons and we need to do it on a scale of like 500 years minimum to to really feel like we've we've successfully you know wound down the the heating that it's been causing 
I'm wondering if you can maybe let's talk about direct air capture a little bit more specifically. Um, I'm curious whether is it sort of like the biggest um, solution that's being proposed in terms of climate repair? And um, either way, how how does it work? (laughs) Yeah. And and I should I should mention that, you know, carbon dioxide is not the only greenhouse gas. Right. There are others out there. There's methane, which doesn't last forever like CO2 does, but does really go to town on the warming while it's up there. So things we can do to remove those other greenhouse gases, that's also really potent. Yeah, so direct air capture, I think it's starting to have a moment because there's lots of of companies and technologies that are, are starting to find their footing. And also, it's just kind of like cleanly, like you don't have to have this whole explain like, well, we grow the trees and then we burn them, but we don't let the the smoke come out and then we regrow the trees. Instead, you can just be like, we're just turning on the machine and uh, we're going to take the the nasty carbon that's in the air and get it out and put it away. So it's got a kind of, you know, simplicity that is appealing. Uh, And I do think that that's not to knock it, right? That's, that's to to say that um, in you know the simpler these solutions are, sometimes the easier they are to fit into bigger systems, but they really just need to move air through a sorbent and then have a mechanism for getting the carbon out of this the sorbent and into some you know sort of storage or pipeline or something like that, or and then you know you can pump it down underground into different kinds of reservoirs, you know that moving air is something we do a lot of already, right? Our air conditionings, our, our sort of ventilation systems do that. Uh, so we have, kind of have a lot of expertise on on how that works already built into our sort of global technology system. And, you know, people are developing different kinds of sorbents that hopefully will find one that's really scalable and really effective. I think they're getting kind of more efficient all the time. I'm not keeping up on every every single development in that space. And I, I think if, if you did, that'd be a full-time job, right? Because a lot is happening, especially with the amount of, of money coming into the industry from the Inflation Reduction Act, that kind of thing. I liked in your article how you pointed out that like a global wealth tax is obviously the most sensible and fair mechanism for funding climate repair. But that also leaves a lot of space for like moral hazard, which is like, you know, if you've got fossil fuel companies paying for this stuff or you've got like a an, an elite's wealth tax paying for this, but like the world's richest 1% produce more than twice the emissions of the poorest 50% of humanity, like what's to stop people? Like, ev- like this is our problem with um, carbon offsets. Kristen and I have done a, <laughs> we, we have like a, a carbon offsets sort of ick factor that I don't feel towards um, direct air capture, but I feel like it could be, it could be one of those things where like, oh, great, we're filtering the air. So now let's just keep burning everything, you know? That's definitely been the discourse here in Canada, at least around like carbon capture. <laughs> but, um, but what, what do you think? I tend to think that the ship has really sailed on all those moral hazard arguments, right? I mean, I think those had a lot of value like 15 years ago, but now we just got to do stuff. This like, oh no, if we kind of create the wrong kind of set of of arguments or, or incentives where like people in the future will not behave correctly. And it's like, I'm in Phoenix 
And we we were were roasting this summer. It's not about you know how do we not uh, how do we sort of trick people in the future into not behaving badly, right? It's about like what can we build now to change the system as fast as possible. I mean, I, I I hear the the people who are sort of worried about the the life this gives to the fossil fuel industry. That is a huge hazard, and and the fossil fuel industry are very clear that that is what they want to happen. They the head of of Occidental, an oil company that is building an enormous stack facility in uh, Texas, said like, yeah, if we do this, we can keep the fossil fuel industry alive for the next 60, 70 years, just continue on as is. And and that is very much not where we want to be. My argument with talking about climate repair is that, well, that's not the end of the story, right? Because just because we we feel like there's this ick factor doesn't mean we don't have to do it. We're already past where we want to be. We Turns out we're at like 1.1 degrees warming. Turns out that is like a really nasty place to to try and live as a as a global civilization right we just got climate catastrophe after climate catastrophe and those aren't gonna go away if we stabilize at 1.5 in fact 1.5 is going to be an order of magnitude worse than 1.1 because it every pip we go up the the chain is is seems to be accelerating us in more of a geometric way than this kind of nice easy you know, nice, easy slope, right? It, it's, we just got to do it for the sake of, of our own survival and, 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 you know, the, for the sake of the billions of, of people in the future who are vulnerable to all the kinds of climate chaos that we're, we're seeing now and having to live with. I just don't think we want to live on a planet that's 1.1 degrees warmer than we grew up on. Right. I think, I think we should, you know, maybe like 0.5 is, is fine. I mean, we might want it like slightly warmer than it was at exactly the, the beginning of industrialization. Cause that was, there was a little bit of a mini ice age there. Right. So maybe we don't go all the way down to, to like 270 PPM. Maybe we want to find like 310 or something like that. Right. But I think we we just don't want to stay here indefinitely, uh, which means we just gotta you know suck up the moral hazard and find a way to make this happen. And you know the thing about the global wealth tax, right? The the reason I argue for that, you know, it's it would be it's progressive, it's redistributive in in many ways, it's it's reparative because it's asking for the most part the the people who who benefited the most from the fossil fueled global economy to pay the most and and you know oftentimes the rich you know from a personal level have a, a massively bigger carbon footprint than the rest of us right and and that kind of scales right like i mean rich countries have a bigger footprint than, than poor countries rich people have a bigger footprint than poor people so you know that for me there's a kind of a, a reparative and redistributive sort of justice aspect to a global wealth tax as a as a way of doing this. But the other big one is that how do you pay for a global public good, right? If I take a gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere, I do not and I and it costs me, you know, however many dollars, right? Like 
one million dollars. I think that that's actually kind of a lot more than where we'll eventually hit. But I'm not going to get sort of a million dollars of climate benefits to me personally or my town, right? It's going to be distributed across this chaotic global system, right? I mean, the the major beneficiaries of taking carbon out of the air in West Texas might be people in Bangladesh, right? Or people in Portland, Oregon, who otherwise would would fry in a in a heat wave. Or can, you know, Canadians are being hit by by heat waves too, right? And it's the it's the, oftentimes the places that are most vulnerable. Not that you know we didn't suffer a lot in our our Phoenix heat wave here, but at least we've got air conditioning. It's distributed globally. It doesn't care about borders. In many ways, it's distributed equally among every person on the planet. Though you kind of can't really like. It, it's really messy to try and to try and actually like calculate or prove that. So you know how do you how do you pay for this as a commodity? It's it's not like saying you know we we just want to like order a million widgets and you know whoever needs the widgets can pay for the widgets. It's it's a totally different thing and and so you know for me this is why the left should engage with this, why progressives should engage with this because. In the end, no matter how much sort of big game they talk right now uh, and how much they're trying to get in on the ground floor because they think you know, there's a lot of money to be made here, the, the billionaires and, and private industry and pirate, private capital are not going to pay for this themselves, right? In fact, they are getting in early because they think that the rest of us are going to pay for it, right? They think that governments are going to, to pay for it, right? That we will have a global climate repair treaty or a global carbon removal treaty, just like we have, you know, the Paris Accords. And, you know, that maybe it would be negotiated at the COP and that, you know, countries would all be obligated in one way or another to, to put in money or to, to, or we would find some sort of global system or we'd make the polluters kind of, pay for it in, in some way. I, I kind of prefer to just like take the polluters and nationalize them and leave their stockholders holding the bag and and then turn those into removal industries. But to your to your question about like how do we pay for it and what are the the hazards, the the reason to do something like a wealth tax is in fact to limit the amount of the amount of moral hazard, right? Not not to yeah enhance it. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard question. So thank you for answering. Uh, Kristen and I have talked a lot about um, geoengineering in general on uh, our show. And I mean, I feel like carbon capture isn't quite the same, but it does feel they they feel like cousins. And so it just it's hard. It's hard because like we're not huge fans of like shooting sulfur into the atmosphere to like dim the sun or whatever. Don't but love it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, after this summer, I am really ready to just, to just be like, let's do it. You know, I, I actually think that, that probably we should just try that. Right. I think, I think we're going to save lives and uh, you know, I hear you. Like I know that there's the moral hazard and the termination shock and, and we should be very careful not to, to end up, you know, screwing up the the Indian monsoon or or the Amazon river basin and all that, but um, you know, it's just too hot. You just got to make it not not quite as hot, and probably we'd we'd learn a lot 
you know, I mean, I think geoengineering is, is, is just such a bad term for all of this stuff, right? Like there's, there's really no uh, approach that geoengineering is a good descriptor for. And yet it is this category that manages to describe all of these things that it's a bad descriptor for. I mean, it's a very, I'm a science fiction writer, so it's a very science fiction writery kind of term. But, you know, the, there comes a point as things emerge out of the realm of, of sort of sci-fi kind of speculation and into the realm of practical industry and policy that you, you need to sort of let go of the hyperbolic terms that we sci-fi writers come with, right? Like, I mean, this is this is why it's it's like ridiculous to try and create the metaverse as imagined by Neil Stevenson, right? It's like, that was a work of fiction. It's, you know, it's not what people want from these technologies. And I think the same thing kind of applies here. I'm just thinking of like all of the billionaires who are fully basing everything that they do on science fiction they read when they were teenagers. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird position. You know, we've, the the torment nexus problem. You know, the sci-fi writer writes, "Don't create the torment nexus," and then uh, two decades later, someone's like, "We finally created the famous torment nexus from the novel." Don't create the torment nexus. And it's like, no, that was a cautionary tale, right? Like that tweet really encapsulated the problem, and it's something that I <laughs> wrestle with and don't have a good solution to because we also can't just like. We, we can't be like, don't think of an elephant on this stuff, right? It's probably good for us to actively imagine possible uh, technological futures and, and, and often with this kind of critical lens. But yeah, I mean, in the end, you know, the solution is, is not don't <laughs> publish dangerous ideas. It's like more democratic control over the economy and, and these sorts of things so that, you know, ran random people's obsessions don't end up uh, making the choice for everyone else. Yeah, I mean, not having billionaires would go a long way in that direction as well. Yeah. These are all kind of collective choices we have to make that go beyond what right now we really have a good governmental apparatus for, right? I, I have been to the uh, UNFCCC negotiations, the COP. I wrote a book about it. It is doing the hardest thing human beings have ever tried to do, but man, it is it is still like a struggle, right? And so I think that when we are thinking of things like climate repair as something we want to pursue for the sake of our descendants and for the sake of ourselves, we should acknowledge that it, it's going to require us to build institutions that can handle the problem of planetary management, right? Which we don't have, which a lot of people are going to find really, you know, are going to be immense magnets for conspiratorial thinking, right? I mean, the UN is like the smallest, po the weakest possible form of international government. And, and yet that's the, you know, it's a huge locus for, for paranoia. It's going to require states to, give up their their sort of sovereignty and control and participate in these big systems. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is, is we should just say like, well, if this is going to have to happen, which it, I mean, the IPCC says we've got to take 10 gigatons of carbon out of 
the atmosphere a year just to hit 1.5 targets, right? Just to bend the curve enough. So that's not even to draw down our historical emissions and get back to a, a sort of stable global PPM. If uh, we're going to do that, it's going to require building basically like another automobile industry, right? That's the, the sort of scale that people have said we might be talking about. And that is going to affect thousands, tens of thousands of communities around the, the world. There's going to be DAC plants. There's going to be pipelines. There's going to be a huge amount of renewable energy that we're going to have to build past what our simple energy needs are. I mean, this is the the sort of the other secret of, of this is that is how this fits into a, a sort of photon powered world where, you know, we have a lot of energy in the middle of the day and then like nothing at night. I think that, you know, turning on uh, DAC plants when you have excess electrons is a, a really smart way to use some of those those electrons that you're really just trying to give away. I mean, this is something that like you, you talk with people in the industry and they're like, yeah, you can never do that. You can't run a DAC plant for like three hours a day because then it would take you forever to pay off your capital expenditures, your CapEx, right? You could pay off your, the loans you use to build the plant. So I think that's a problem we've got to figure out because the, the economic incentives are really weird. And so all this is to say is that we, we sh- if we're going to build another car industry, we should do it right. We should do it progressively. We should do it in a way where communities are consulted and have control and benefit from uh, these apparatuses, from these industrial machines that, because they have to go somewhere, right? We want to make sure we're not replicating the the injustices that were perpetrated by the fossil fuel industry. We want to make sure that we're being good to ecosystems uh, and that, you know, we're, we're sort of just doing all this in a, in a just way. It's going to require the help of progressives and leftists and, and people who, who believe in justice and who don't just believe in the market to be in, in the trenches making policy on this stuff. So I, that's my pitch for if you're listening to this and you uh, why you should kind of get over the, the sort of moral squeamishness that sometimes comes of these technologies and like get involved in, in making it happen in a way that is going to actually be be fair and, and beneficial and, you know, create the kind of dream of a, of a, a global public good that benefits us all and helps advance our, our broader goals. Yeah, I wonder if I can maybe put a, like a question to you just on that, just to push you just a little bit. So it seems to me anyway, and please correct me if I'm wrong, some of these technologies have like more risks than others, especially as you mentioned in a context where our governance systems are not exactly democratic. They're pretty unfair um, in within countries and between countries. So is there like a vision for a future where we sort of say, yes, let's go with direct air capture because I mean, at least it seems to me like the biggest drawback to that is that it takes a lot of energy. Um, but if we green our grids, that wouldn't necessarily be so bad versus like shooting sulfates into the atmosphere where there's a lot more risks and uncertainties about the technology. So do you think there should be a sort of approach where we say yes, some things, but no to other things that might just be too inherently risky? Well, sure. Yeah. I, I don't think it's it's really meaningful to compare DAC with 
uh, SRM, the solar radiation management, right? Because you know, SRM is a very short-term solution to a, an acute problem, and DAC is a very long-term solution to a chronic problem. When, when we say let's do DAC and we say we want to draw down 10 gigatons of, of carbon a year, which is just to, just to compensate for hard to abate emissions and, and to help us sort of bend our curve, right? When we talk about that, we're inherently embarking on an intergenerational project, right? Because it's going to take, even if we turned off all carbon emissions tomorrow, and had a genie create a 10 gigaton a year DAC industry for us, we'd still have to wait 50 years to cover the 500 gigaton mess that we have, right? So for me, the way this thing is going to expand across time and the, the way politics shifts and we we change our priorities, we forget the reasons we started doing things in the first place, you know, history un- unfolds in, in unpredictable ways. And then not only do we have to take the stuff out, but then we have to have institutions that can make sure it stays put for 500 years, right? You can count on one hand the number of institutions there are on the, the planet that have been around for, for 500 years, maybe maybe two hands. And a lot of them, you know, we've been furiously working to <laughs> dismantle for many good reasons, right? So I think we should keep those sorts of, of things in mind uh, as the real challenges of the, the DAC question um, and the, the climate repair question and, and not sort of get caught up in, oh, should we like take a painkiller or should we try and, and like get chemotherapy, right? And they're just not in the same category. I, I want to have a debate about the solar radiation management stuff, the sulfates, because I think there's sort of good reasons to do it and good reasons to, to be worried. But I, I don't think we should talk about carbon removal as a part of that debate, unless it's to, you know, in a sense of, okay, we've established a, a treaty that we are like very confident will successfully draw down our carbon over the course of X number of years, but we are facing truly catastrophic climate chaos because we've let the planet get to, you know, 2.5 degrees warming. Uh, so let's, you know, we've got this policy in place and let's, let's go and, and cool things down. And then we'll, we'll find a way to get us off the, off the sulfates down the line and without too much uh, termination shock. So that's kind of my take, just like I think we should be careful about distinguishing the larger carbon removal question from should we plant a lot of trees? I think we should also distinguish it from should we do some some emergency cooling now? Yeah, thanks. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm really like happy to have heard your answer. Um, so thanks for that. Let's pivot then to talk about your work on speculative fiction, which is something I love. I was telling you about this before we started recording. I'm a huge fan of speculative fiction. I'm really excited to read your book, um, Our Shared Storm, a novel of five climate futures. I actually remember the cover. I was working in a bookstore when this came out. So I was like, oh, I know this book (laughs) when I saw it. Uh, I'm going to pick it up probably later this week. But 
What inspired you to write it? It's it's essentially, I mean, you can tell us what it's about. You're going to do a better job than me. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it's my kind of climate realist book. And it basically creates science fictional scenarios that are meant to illustrate the five core scenarios in the most recent IPCC report. They're called the Shared Socioeconomic Pathways. They've been in development for some years now. Uh, the ones I use in the book are not quite what's in the report because they they were sort of, they dropped, I, I think, the politically inconvenient one, which is uh, SSP4, which focuses on inequality, and instead had kind of two versions of the sustainability scenario, one that's kind of more ambitious and one that's that's sort of potentially more realistic. There's like a, a 1.5 version and a, a 1.9 version or 2.1 version, something like that. Anyhow, it tries to do what I think is one of the big challenges of writing climate fiction, which is it shows you the, the dystopian danger, but also the much more utopian hope of what we could do and what kind of world we could build if we really came together to solve this problem. So there's a kind of middle of the road scenario that feels very familiar. There's a scenario in which we just kind of go wild and burn all the fossil fuels we want and kind of worry about the the problems later and just treat every disaster as an opportunity to redevelop and, you know, as a sort of shock doctrine kind of market market opportunity. There's one in which inequality is skyrocketing and that how how inequality is sort of metastasizes and plays out on a global scale has become intrinsically linked to how we how we try and handle the climate. There's a scenario that's kind of a breakdown scenario, right? Where all sort of attempts at, at you know meaningful global cooperation on this have, have failed. And it's just really nasty. And you know, not only are we having a bad climate problem, but all the problems that climate chaos causes are leading to conflict and militarization and various forms of, of you know nasty nationalism and, and displacement and crises of that kind of order, right? And then there's a the the scenario SSP one in which we kind of make it happen, right? We, we get together. We don't have too many challenges in our way. We successfully transition to clean energy and and do a lot to improve our relationship with the biosphere and at the same time reduce inequality and generally make life better for, for everyone. So the tricky thing is like, you know, when you write about the climate, it's like, oh, did you write a dystopian book? or a utopian book. And well, it's like, you know, you don't want to come down on one side or the other of that, or at least I don't. Right. Uh, so I, I got to have my cake and, and eat it too. And, and say, well, I've, I've got five different futures to show you. Not, not just one. I get, so let's see, the original question was how was I inspired to do this? Well, I was working on a master's degree in sustainability and read some stuff about the SSPs, which at the time were kind of like earlier in, in their development. And I read them as like, oh, these are science fiction stories. And and I had been writing speculative fiction, climate fiction, and wanted to make that a core part of my like intellectual 
contribution to the world. And so I was like, I, I can work with these. I can turn these in, into something. So I, I ended up writing basically the, the book that we ended up publishing as, as my master's thesis. And it was a really fun structure to play with from both from an, an ideas standpoint, but also from, from a kind of craft and literary standpoint. Because what I ended up doing was instead of just having sort of five separate stories, I tried to have one story that I told five different ways. I wanted to reduce the number of variables, right? So that I don't have one story set in America and one story set in Europe and one story set in Japan or whatever. And, and then it becomes about the climate futures of these different places, right? I wanted to have sort of one, one place and I really wanted it to be global um, and not about, you know, the future of one community. So it's really set at the cop and what's, you know, what's being debated some decades from now at the cop is kind of the, something that's being explored in every scenario. What is the governance mechanism? What's the culture of that institution? And, you know, it's about a superstorm hitting the cop and how people react to that and, and so on. So, and I think it's like kind of jaunty and fun. And, you know, there are four core characters who show up in every story. And it's really cool for me as a writer to be able to take the hero from one story and then make him the villain in the next story, right? Kind of remix these characters and try and dig into, you know, what is at their core and then what has been shaped by the opportunities they were given and that were in part shaped by the choices that we have collect- we collectively make over the coming decades around climate action. That's really interesting. I- I'm wondering if you can maybe... Because it strikes me that this is sort of like such a good way to imagine different aspects of the climate crisis. So I'm wondering if maybe you can just like wax poetic a bit about like the role of speculative fiction in like imagining something as, I mean, uncertain in some ways, big in other ways, certain in some ways as climate change. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll say is if you Google climate fiction or solar punk or anything like that, you'll find a lot of articles asking like, can novels save the world? And the answer is clearly no, (laughs) no novels can't save the world. We have to do a shit ton of other things to save the world, right? Like don't be ridiculous. So I I don't want anyone to get the impression, even though I'm a big fan of novels and I want people to buy novels and take them seriously. I I think it's a, not a, a smart way to approach it is to, to be like, well, if we can write a bunch of novels about climate change, well, then then we'll win the hearts and minds and everything will make it happen. Darn! <laughs> I know, if only it were that easy. The novelists have been slacking off. That's why we have this global catastrophe. No, but I do think that, you know, I say that they're, they're necessary but not sufficient, right? We, we, they aren't going to solve the problem alone, but I do think that we're really going to, not be able to create sufficient climate action if we aren't creating novels about the problem and movies and TV shows and music and art and every kind of culture making that we have, because this has to be a a civilization wide mobilization in many ways. And that includes sort of creative parts of, of our society that help us make sense of and, and, and process these things that are, happening to us, going to happen, 
might happen, have, have already happened. So, it, you know, it's really, it's a sense-making tool, right? Uh, I like to say it's a, it's a seeing instrument is the real value that it plays. Not as a form of rhetoric that it's going to like convince people of, of one side or another, but as a way of, of helping us go and consider different possibilities and think about them deeply and then make policy to prepare for one or the other or, or, to, or to collectively choose because there are just normative questions on, on the table, right? And there are, there are winners and losers of these different systems that we might end up with on the other side of this. So those are some of the things that I, I think about and that, that went in, into this book, right? I mean, it is, it is a call for climate action. It is trying to dramatize the you know, basic question of like how hard we go or not, but it's also asking like how these things entangle with, with our larger social and, and economic and political systems, which I, and you know, that kind of complexity, I think is something that literature is, is uniquely suited for helping us make sense of. Yeah. And I think it's, it seems to me that it's particularly valuable for a problem like climate change and all of the sort of ways in which it's going to change our politics and the way we relate to one another and just the sense of normalcy and certainty. Um, but I'm curious about your decision to, to choose, like to set it at the cop. Um, Cause that to me is really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess, you know, like I said, I, I didn't want it to become a story about one place. I want it to be a story about the whole planet, but it's really I mean, some authors are definitely trying, right? Like Stan Robinson's Ministry for the Future has a very planetary, it bounces all around. Uh, but it also, you know, is it, like mine is kind of, has a lot of its major storytelling happening in the kind of the halls of power where this is, these decisions are, are taking place. And I went, I went to the cop uh, some years ago and did a bunch of kind of ethnography, very casual novelist level ethnography of, what that culture is like and, and who's there and how do they spend their time and so on. And it's, I mean, it's a super interesting place uh, and in many ways really inspiring and in many ways really, really depressing. <laughs> so once I'd been there, I was just like, I have to write about this. This is, I don't think there had been much in the way of uh, literary treatments of that community. So it seemed like a, a good one to engage with. And, and I mean, I hope that readers can somewhat read the book and, and come away feeling like they, they have somewhat of a handle on some of the, the, you know, the big flows of power and the mechanisms by which that institution is governed. Though, of course, I mean, I'm speculating about it, right? So I make a bunch of stuff up. So not to be taken literally, but the thing about the cop is that most people even who are who care a lot about climate are really involved, don't really know how it works or what goes on there. But you know who is there every year and who really knows how it works? The fossil fuel industry. They have a huge presence and they've got it down. You know, they're not showing up, you know, trying to figure it out, out how this place works on the fly, right? I mean, they they have made how it works. And they really understand it and know how to, to pull the levers for their own ends. And I think that the rest of us need to, to catch up and get 
really involved and and figure out how this institution is working because it's going to determine the fate of the planet, right? Yeah, it seems like a pretty pretty wild thing for us to all know nothing about. So I can I can actually see yeah why you were so drawn to that like as a setting. <laughs> Something that I really loved about like the way you ended the Jacobin piece, this hopeful sort of vision of what it would take to make climate repair and especially direct air capture work on a global scale is just this this hopeful vision that you offer of humanity coming together on a planetary scale to repair our climate. Um, We have ministries in place to protect against pandemics or asteroids and just like how this, it felt as though you were taking the climate crisis and and showing it as, as not like this horrific thing that we always talk about it, it being, which it is, but also it's this opportunity for us to kind of show up and maybe become like better. So I just really liked the way you ended that. And I think that it's, it, it, it shows that you're a very good speculative <laughs> thinker. And uh, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to read your book. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of the message at the end of the book too, right? That, you know, there is a, a version of how this goes where, you know, in, in 200 years, we can look back and being like, well, that was wild, but okay. You know, we maybe we don't have the stirring music going, but I really feel like the the sense of impending disaster that has defined you know my lifetime, thanks to the climate crisis, and you know, and and also has really defined life for the last you know eighty ninety years because of the bomb that that has like narrowed our sense of, of human possibility. And we're just trying to get through the bottleneck that we have found ourselves in. But on the, if we can get through there on the other side of the bottleneck, we can, we can go anywhere, right? We can become any kind of people we choose to, to become, right? This is, we are the ones that, that make history and like the future is just a form of history that hasn't happened yet. So it is like up to us and we can make some collective choices uh, about what kind of planet we want to live on, what kind of species we want to be. And like, and hopefully if we make good choices, that can also mean that individuals, you and me and the people on the street and people on the other side of the planet all have greater options of, of who they're going to be in their lives. So that, you know, that sort of like sense that, if we can marshal uh, effective collective action, it would it could build us institutions that allow us to in, enhance human freedom in this you know really sort of broad and ongoing way is something that I, I think we should we should be excited about. Okay, well to to wind us down, I was just going to ask like if you have any um, call to action that you would like to to leave our listeners with. Uh, you know, what, what should we all do? Tell us. I mean, probably what you should all do is unionize your workplaces and join a union <laughs> yes. if you aren't already. Yes. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> you know, I, I just don't think we're going to be able to, to do uh, half the things that we want to do in a way that we're going to feel good about, right? And I think some of these things are just going to happen because the incentives are, are too strong. We just got to make it happen. And because, you know, there's a big chunk of the capitalist class that is happy to, you know, throw the sort of oil owning 
chunk of the the capitalist class under the bus in order to, to sort of make money on the next thing. But I think if we don't want that to be the story, we should build union power and uh, use it to demand our sort of publicly owned and, and operated climate repair apparatus. So, so really, so starting, starting with your workplace and, and uh, going from there is kind of a good, a good stepping point, but also learn about the cop and figure out how to go and, and make things hard for the, the people there who suck. Right. I think you can do some of the, the like think global, act local. Right. But I actually think that we should be thinking local about the, the threats to our communities from climate disaster and then acting global by going and, and you know, making our voices heard in these, these international forums. 